This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Human Rights Watch is an independent, nonprofit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy. In partnership with local activists and human rights groups, they expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. They rely on the support of informed, dedicated people, so visit hrw.org kick to make a donation and support its vital work around the world. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. hrw.org slash kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, if like me, you're a fan of mystery and detective novels, then you undoubtedly know the name Michael Conley. Having sold over 75 million books worldwide, including multiple number one New York Times bestsellers, Connolly is the creator of some of the most popular crime fiction series of all time, including the Lincoln Lawyer books and the Bosch novels, the latter of which is now a hit TV series for Amazon. Now Michael Connolly brings together Harry Bosch, his most famous character, with his newest character in his latest novel, Dark Sacred Night, which debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And today, Michael Connolly joins me on the podcast to talk about his literary hero, Raymond Chandler, how he followed in the footsteps of the king of detective noir when he first came to Los Angeles, and how Chandler's novels influenced Michael's own writing. He reveals why he decided to spend the first two and a half decades of his life working as a crime reporter before diving into fiction, how he went about cultivating relationships with LAPD's top homicide detectives, and how those sources still inform his writing today. He talks about how some of those real-life cops inspired his most famous character, Harry Bosch, why he wanted his detective to be an outsider who works within the system, and how he came to name him after the 15th-century Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch. He discusses the active role he plays in the Amazon TV series Bosch, and how that more collaborative process has influenced his novels, including his latest, Dark Sacred Night plus why he gravitates to loners, some of the crazy things you might see working the late shift in LAPD's Hollywood division, and why he's about to jump into the world of true crime podcasts. Coming up with best-selling author Michael Conley in just a moment. Michael Connolly is the author of 31 previous novels, including the New York Times number one bestsellers, Two Kinds of Truth, The Late Show, and The Wrong Side of Goodbye. His books, which include the Harry Bosch series and the Lincoln Lawyer series, have sold more than 74 million copies worldwide. Connolly is a former newspaper reporter who has won numerous awards for his journalism and his novels and is the executive producer of the hit Amazon series Bosch, starring Titus Welliver. Now he brings together Harry Bosch and his newest character, Renee Ballard, in his latest novel, Dark Sacred Night. Michael Conley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. You have had an interesting career as a crime reporter and a crime author, and I understand it was the great noir author Raymond Chandler who started it all for you. 
Exactly. Uh, read his books. Well, actually, I should back up and say mm-hmm. I watched a movie uh, based on his book, uh, The Long Goodbye. The Elliot when, Gould version? The Elliot yeah. Gould version, which I love and some people call, uh, some Chandler purists call an abomination. <laughs> but I loved it. It led me to his books. This is when I was in college. And when I finished reading his books, I said, I want to be a writer. And I want to say that in one of the books, you actually named a character Chandler. Uh, was that your nod to your hero? It was It was like a double nod because um, I also worked at the L.A. Times and the Chandler family um, brought that newspaper to Great Heights um, ah, back when they were yeah. at Great Heights. And so it was, I, I knew it could be taken, but depending on who's reading it, as a nod to one or the other. Were you also a fan of Dashiell Hammett and some of the other noir authors, or was it mostly Raymond Chandler? I've definitely read it all. Um, Chandler was the one, um, something about the way his sardonic, cynical, yet hopeful view of Los Angeles, and I read these before I'd ever even been to Los Angeles, um, captured me. Um, So yeah, Dashiell Hammett's like, you know, one of the best, James M. Cain, so forth. I've I've read them all, but Chandler is the one that over my life I've gone back and reread and reread and reread. You eventually ended up going into journalism instead. Uh, was that sort of your way of hedging your bets and making sure you could still pull a paycheck? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was when when this when the light bulb went off and said, and I knew I wanted to be a writer. I happened to be in a major in engineering, <laughs> which is not really the <laughs> uh, the best educational yeah. path. So I went home and talked to my parents about it, and um, and it wasn't like I went home and said, I want to be a writer. I said, I want to be a crime writer. I want to write these kind of novels, because Chandler was the one that made me, uh, inspired me to say that, but I had been reading them voraciously for a long time. I had been a uh, witness in a uh, to a crime when I was 16, and I spent really? an, a night with um, detectives, and that led me to on the path of reading crime novels. So I finally get to Chandler about three years later, and that's when my world is rocked. And I go home and say, this is what I want to do. And so my father said the usual path is probably like English lit and maybe you become a teacher while you try to write and so on and so forth. He said, but if you're very specific about this, why don't you get into police stations and courtrooms? And I think the best way in there is to, if you, unless you want to be a cop, is uh, to become a uh, newspaper reporter and get a press pass that gets you into these places. And, uh, you know, my father had no no experience in this kind of world, but he was smart enough to say, and if it, and if it doesn't put you in a position, which is what his way of saying if you can't do it, if you can't make it as a writer of fiction, uh, it's a pretty interesting job you'll have. And you'll yeah. have the paycheck you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. So I went down that path and got very lucky. And, and uh, what was kind of like a hopeful plan of hedging bets uh, turned into, at this point, kind of looks like a master plan. <laughs> Before coming out to L.A., you actually spent, uh, I want to say, about six years in the 80s covering the height of Florida's drug wars for the Fort Lauderdale News and Sun Sentinel. Did all that live up to Miami Vice? You know, it's funny. um, it was a very dangerous time then, and, and with with a lot of innocent people getting caught in the crossfire, mm-hmm. that's why it made it such a a strange and dange, dangerous time. I mean, I grew up there, and I saw a change. Um, and I remember, um, I don't know why it was me, because I was mostly a crime reporter, but I was sent down to the Miami uh, City Council, who, behind closed doors, watched the pilot of um, 
Miami Vice, and uh, and it was going to be a story. Is this going to be good for us or bad? And they came out saying, uh, this is atrocious. This is going to put a black eye on Miami and so <laughs> forth. And then it turns out to be a uh, – uh, basically a society-altering show that was number one and so forth. So they had that completely wrong. And that's a big aside yeah. from that, but I just always remember that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the there, you know, I wrote about it as a reporter, but I was also grew up there. And uh, so when you see a community you know pretty well, have a lot of people looking over their shoulders all the time, mm-hmm. um, it has an impact. You eventually headed out west, and having come up on the noir of Raymond Chandler, and of course so many other noir books and movies use Los Angeles as a backdrop, was that always kind of in the back of your mind that moving to L.A. was eventually the goal? You know, it really wasn't. Um, no. And I tried to, you know, write books in um, Fort Lauderdale, uh, the place I grew up, the place I was kind of a big fish in a small pond. It's not wasn't a, it's, it's a suburb of Miami, basically, and I worked for the paper and got to write a lot of the uh, top stories and so forth. So I was content, but uh, my goal was to write novels. So at night I was writing novels, and I wrote a couple, and any writer you've ever talked to, I'm sure, has said um, they're their most harsh critic, and I and that's true. And so these were books that I knew were were failures that that we should not be published. But the encouraging thing was the second one was better than the first one. So I I was learning, <laughs> you know, I was on a learning curve. And so it, it's something about me turning thirty. It was like I can't keep doing this. I ha- I think I have one more chance to do it. And before I take that, let's change my life up in a big way. And so. I sent to newspapers in big cities all over the country, and I was basically going to go to the first one that hired me, and it turned out L.A. Times was the first one to hire me. So I ended up coming to the land of the guy who uh, inspired me, but it was if Denver had called first or Chicago <laughs> Tribune had called first, yeah. maybe Harry Bosch would be a, a Chicago cop. I don't really know. <laughs> and you actually rented, from what I've heard, the same apartment in the Hightower Court that Philip Marlowe lived in in the movie The Long Goodbye. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's taking the homage a little extreme. <laughs> but it, so. there's also a funny story behind that yeah. because when I first moved out here to work for the times, um, you know, it wasn't like you could Google stuff and find it. I actually had yeah. to do some, a sleuthing to find that place. And I did find it. And I knocked on the manager's door to see if that, that specific apartment was available to rent, you know, when I was moving out here and it was not available, but I had my fresh, um, set of you know, LA times business cards. So I gave him one and said, you know, if it ever comes open, uh, let me know. And if the situation's right, I will rent it. And he actually kept that card for like something like eight years and really? ca- called it. And um, I was long gone from the LA Times. And I was just writing my books at that point. But the person who had that phone number at the Times knew me and connected me so that I rented it because I was in this stage of my life where I was going back and forth between Florida uh, because I had a, was making building a family, and I wanted my daughter to know her grandparents and so forth that were all there. So I needed a place in L.A., so I did end up having it for about five years. What was it like immersing yourself in the world of your hero? Um, I, well, I did. I can say I wrote a couple books there, um, but it didn't have air conditioning, so um, <laughs> it had a it had a you know a wall unit air conditioning in the bedroom. So the only place that in the summer that I would be would be in the bedroom. 
So it was it was more of a romantic thing than a practical thing. Mm-hmm. And the parking around there is right by the Hollywood Bowl is terrible, especially if there's a, an event at the bowl. Did you find yourself kind of seeking out the famous locations from Chandler's novels? Yes, I don't know if they still have this now, but they used to have you know a paper map uh, of uh, Chandler's spots, places he lived and wrote, as well as places from the movies. And um, you know, I was looking for inspiration, and I thought mm-hmm. that was very cool to see the places. I, I would say the, th- the thing that was most impressive on me is that in his novel, The Little Sister. In chapter 11, Marlowe just is having a frustrating day on the case, and he just takes a, a drive around L.A., um, you know, and he goes through Laurel Canyon um, up to Ventura. There was an Ventura freeway, Ventura, um, I think it was called Highway or something, and takes that out and then goes down through the mountains to Malibu and then back around. So he kind of loops the city. And it's such a beautiful writing, and and it's really not plot-oriented at all. It's all about describing Los Angeles. And I took that drive many times and marveled at how his descriptions that were now at that point probably 40 years old um, were still legit, you know. And I want to ask you about the moments when, I guess, perhaps the noir version of L.A. in your mind kind of came up against reality because you, I want to say for 15 years, were covering the police beat and interacting with detectives and cops. From the noir books and the noir movies, we have this image of a lot going on in the shadows and dirty cops and all the lines being blurred between the worlds of law enforcement, big business, power brokers, the underworld, and even, of course, Hollywood. Does that match up with what you saw in reality, or is reality a little bit duller than the noir fiction? It it didn't match up exactly, but I mean, I you could see what uh, Chandler was doing. He he wanted his guy to be an outsider who was looking in, so therefore he couldn't have a badge. He couldn't be a cop, mm-hmm. and he so he created them as foils or as obstacles that he had to get around to to solve his case. So. I'm sure that was exaggerated, although I know we L.A. has a, a real history of uh, police corruption and things like that, especially in those times. But when I got here, I, I saw a very professional police department that was very media savvy, since this is one of the media centers of the uh, of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, that part I w- is, is not what I read in the Chandler mm-hmm. books. And, of course, you were covering the LAPD at a very interesting time because, if I have this right, this was around the time in the 90s of Rodney King and the OJ trial, right? I quit right before the OJ trial. Okay. But, yeah, Rodney King and the riots, all that, were um, part of my watch on um, the police beat. You know, the LA Times back then was huge, and I wasn't the only guy on the police beat. We had several, like five or six, but I was one of them, and— yeah, I mean, it's very formative. Um, you know, here you are, a newspaper reporter. You kind of, it's kind of an exaggeration, but you feel like you got the inside scoop on the city. You know, it wasn't like there was no internet or anything. So, like, when you went home at night, you felt like tomorrow morning people will find out what I already know. You mm-hmm. know, so you kind of had this egotistical prince of the city feel to you that. And I'm not the only one. I know it affects lots of lots of writers, but in me, it was like I couldn't ever foresee that the city would come apart the way it did after the Rodney King's verdict, 
And here I was, this uh, police reporter for the, the central newspaper in this area. And like the police, like the community, I was totally caught flat-footed and surprised by what happened. Now, I know that you base most of your detectives like Harry Bosch or the new character Renee Ballard on real cops or amalgams of real cops that you've known. When you write about journalists in your books, are they based on you? Um, sometimes. I mean, obviously I've had that experience. I wrote a book called The Poet um, a long time ago. It was actually the first book I wrote after leaving the business of newspapers. And um, it was about a reporter named Jack McAvoy. And that was uh, pretty close to being autobiographical in terms of my view of that job and how I did it. Mm -hmm. You know, like he has some trauma in his life that, that, that I don't share. But it was like one of these, you know, when I write a book about Harry Bosch and I'm sitting there in a scene, I have to think with everything I know about Harry Bosch, what would he do? What did he say here? When I was writing about Jack McVoy, I just wrote and just because he said and did everything I would do. Um, you know, and then there's been reporters since and books and even one who turns out to be a killer. So hopefully I don't share <laughs> everything with these uh, every reporter that I've uh, I've mentioned in my books. Yeah, I have to say, you're not always kind to reporters in your fiction. Sometimes they're portrayed as bottom feeders and willing to stoop to less ethical tactics to get a story, uh, not to mention being killers, as you mentioned. Um, when you were a reporter, were you the kind of guy who was prone to bending the rules or would take risks like that, maybe finagle your way into places that you probably weren't supposed to be? Um, I don't think so. I mean, the thing about... Uh, there, I, I spent two. There's two phases of my life as a reporter. One was reporter uh, in my hometown, um, where it was not a big town, and I could basically just walk into a detective bureau, and it was mm -hmm. like, "Hey, Mike, how you doing?" Type of relationship. Then I moved to L.A., which is a massively bigger city, and the media and an uh, LAPD are are at odds. You know, they're like fists bumping. And you can go anywhere in there without, um, a, you know, someone approving it or an escort and so forth. So it was it was a tough time for me as a reporter to go from where I could pick up a phone and reach almost anybody to having to spend a lot of time building trust and building uh, sources and so forth. And so you're really not going to do that if you're if you're underhanded as a reporter, mm -hmm. like if you go around people who say who asked you not to that kind of thing. Um, and so that what was important to me was because I didn't know if I'd ever be able to quit and be a full-time novelist. I thought, you know, LA times would, might be where I work for the next 30 some years. And I wasn't a guy who said, I want to jump off of this beat and start covering politics. I was fascinated by crime and I thought I could end up doing this for 30 years. So I got to play the long game. I got to be trustworthy. Um, I got to write stories that are extremely accurate. And, you know, in my time at um, L.A. Times, I never had to write one correction. And, and I think over time I built sources and, and became a, um, a pretty credible reporter. But it, it t does take a while. And it's also served you well in your fiction. Uh, you take great pains to make sure that all of your books are rooted in reality. And you've maintained relationships with uh, a lot of these cops over the years who are some of your most valuable resources. Are there ever times when they say, hey, you got that wrong? Or we know this character is based on Joe over here and he's kind of upset at you or something. Um, I, um, 
I have a good relationship, um, but I have to admit that I meet most of them when they uh, have read my books and see something wrong, and they'll reach out like to yeah. my website and say, love your books, but this is wrong. And then I have their email, and then I respond to them. And then the next thing you know, we're having breakfast at the Pacific Dining Car or something like that. And then, because I'm not a newspaper reporter anymore, so the how I get sources is a little different. Um, and so that's how it starts, and then eventually it becomes a pretty strong friendship. Mm-hmm. I would say my best friends in Los Angeles are, are uh, the kind of people I write about, detectives. And uh, so it's obviously it serves me well. Um, I have this philosophy that Harry Bosch is not, not real. Um, so so in order to connect him to readers, I want to plan his feet in a, the most real environment I can. So I try to get everything I can write about the the geography of Los Angeles, the places he goes, all that, um, the forensics, the procedure, the politics, the bureaucracy. I try to get all that right. So I'm still using my reportorial muscles, I guess you'd say, um, to write these books. So at, at the end of the day, what I want is that, yeah, Harry Bosch does not exist, but everything else in this book is legit, is real, you know? Yeah, and you really see that, especially with the TV series, Bosch, because you get to use all of these great locations around L.A. And one thing that I appreciate is that unlike so many movies and TV shows, you're not just filming at the beach or in Hollywood or something like that. You get into all of the little bedroom communities on the exterior of L.A. and all the little neighborhoods that make up this crazy town. Yeah, I mean, it's a point of pride of the show to go where no man has gone before kind of <laughs> is a motto. Um, find new locations. And, of course, we there's some that um, are universal and are in many shows, and, and you have to use them. But, yeah, we have a, an amazing locations team um, that brings us to stuff all the time that, that has not been tapped by other filmmakers. Uh, the books are kind of a starting point. I try to do that in my books as well. And um, that's one of the fun things about the show, and I think it does deliver – it helps deliver two things. One, shows L.A. to the readers uh, viewers who have maybe never been here, but it also shows the very important thing of Bosch and his city, the connection mm-hmm. between him and his city because, you know, the idea that Bosch is Los Angeles and Los Angeles is Bosch is a, an important part of what we're trying to do. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with author Michael Connolly when we come back in just a minute. In the next 60 seconds, you're going to learn how the Flatiron School can change your life. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design, but they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet because this is a school designed to educate you in the art of change. So if you're feeling stuck, bored, or unfulfilled, Flatiron will teach you how to change things. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. The results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com podcasts to read about graduates' new careers and salary ranges and explore upcoming courses as well as exciting new careers. You can start building your own new career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron School's WeWork campuses or take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. 
Enrollment is now open. It's time to future-proof your career and change things, starting with you. Flatironschool.com slash podcast. And earlier you were talking about how Raymond Chandler made Philip Marlowe an outsider looking in. Uh, you decided to make Bosch and Renee Ballard insiders who worked within the police system in L.A., what made you want to do that? Well, as you said, I had spent a lot of years as a um, reporter, and so I was in that environment. I was in the police stations, you know, that plan from my dad. I was in the courtrooms, and I was in the police stations. And so I wanted to use what I knew. Um, and I thought that, you know, there's a lot of people writing novels or trying to write novels, and I thought, you know, what do I have that maybe they don't have mm -hmm. that can set me apart? And it was like access because – I had a big overlap. I wrote my first three novels while still being a crime reporter for the LA Times. And so I had access in the and so I was using it. And, you know, and I had 14 years of anecdotal stories that never end up in newspaper stories, but, you know, they're kind of in your back pocket that, that are perfect for novels, for fiction. So I wanted to do that, but I, but you know, I am the disciple of Raymond Chandler. So I did my best to make these characters loners and outsiders, and not feeling comfortable, even though they do carry a badge and carry a gun, and are definitely the uh, the long arm of the law, the the representation of the power and might of the state. Um, but you can feel uncomfortable uh, if you're that, and 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 so that's why I. Uh, I went that route, but I also tried to adhere to um, the the author who inspired me. You know, so I did stuff with Bosch, like, in the beginning. You know, like, I made him a smoker because you have to go outside to smoke. I made him left-handed because it's a right-handed society. You know, I just did little things that maybe were subliminal, but I think together uh, added up to him feeling like I'm outside looking mm -hmm. in. I'm like Philip Marlowe. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't so much that you were creating characters who were outsiders looking in as it was they were outsiders who were in. Who were yeah, I, or isolated yeah. Uh, in, in yeah. the, uh, on the you know, interest side. Uh, and I'm trying to remember, I don't know if you've ever explained this, but how did you end up naming your character Harry Bosch after Hieronymus Bosch, the Dutch painter of the 15th century? Well, I was, you know... Um, Chandler inspired me, and when I went down that road, you know, at 19 to uh, wanting to be a writer, I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to suddenly write a crime novel when I was 22. I knew I had to experience the world, and, you know, being a newspaper reporter was going to maybe make it happen a little faster. But, you know, I spent my time voraciously reading crime novels and analyzing them, and, you know, the bottom line is it's about character. You know, you obviously have to have a puzzle and high stakes and tension and twists and turns. All that stuff's really important. But the most important thing is is the reader's connection with a character. And so when I was building Harry Bosch, it was like character, character, character. Mm -hmm. What can I say? What can I what kind of history can I give him? And that would go to a name as well. Give him a name that is intriguing or is metaphoric in some way. Um, when I was in college, I happened to study the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch in a, just a random art appreciation type class. And the painting stayed with me. And mm. they're, um, you know, they're five centuries old, but they're about a world gone wrong. There's a lot of a, a religious yeah. allegory that is not, related to the my Bosch, but 
but the paintings are about crime and punishment, a world gone wrong. Um, and in that way, they somewhat feel like crime scenes. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, this guy I'm going to write about is going to go to crime scenes. He's going to be a homicide detective. And he's going to know how to read a crime scene the way maybe someone knows how to read the symbolism in a painting. And it just kind of brought me back to that very strange painter that I studied in college. And, you know, I went with Ferran Miss Bosch. Um, this is, you know, this was my first book was published in 92. So, you know, the Internet and being able to look stuff up so quickly changed the world. But back then, I knew that I would say more than half the people who read this would have never heard of Hieronymus Bosch. Sure. And they would uh, be intrigued because, like, that's a pretty strange name. Maybe if I yeah. keep reading, I'll find out what it means. Yeah, and strange and, paintings, too. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the people who knew yeah. the, the painter would also say the same thing. That, mm -hmm. that guy's a pretty strange guy. Yeah. And now five centuries later, there was a detective named after him. I just thought these things would all help me mm -hmm. establish the character and establish my first novel and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, somewhere I read you said that you thought that plot was king and eventually you realized that character is king. Certainly if you want to create a successful series as you have, that's the case. But even with individual novels, why does character trump plot? Well, that, th that learning process was... Um, you know what I what I said that the two books remember I said I wrote that didn't go anywhere those were plot mm -hmm. oriented and that okay. was that was the big lesson mm -hmm. I learned I'm not connecting this character um, to a reader um, so but the larger answer to your question is that you know you can turn a TV on at any time of the day and now with streaming like you can watch Bosch anytime you want there's lots of shows on TV that show how cops do their work for example mm -hmm. but. TV and movies can't get inside people's heads. And uh, that's the dimension of books that is different and that sets it apart as, in terms of storytelling and that I love. And when you get inside somebody's head and you're riding with them through a story where you're riding through, you're seeing the world through Harry Bosch's eyes, you, you know, every word is delivering some character. And, and that's why, that's what brings people back. They like the way Harry looks at the world. They like the way he deals with the obstacles in front of him. They like his empathy towards victims. They're, these are all character aspects. And, uh, of course, they're there for a good ride. They don't want to see the bad guy on page 10 or figure out who the bad guy is on page 10. They want to be surprised. And, you know, so it is It is like, you know, spinning plates. There's a lot of plates you got to keep spinning. But the big one is character because that determines whether someone wants to know more about that person's world which translates to, I'd like to read about him again. And I know that you've been very protective of Bosch once the media rights eventually reverted back to you after it had sort of been stuck in what we call development hell here in Hollywood. And you've been very involved in the making of this series. I wonder what that experience has been like for you and has the work of being an executive producer and being in the writer's room and writing episodes for television have those influenced how you write your novels? Well, the experience has been great um, because I, I, you know, I don't want to. I'm not trying to be egotistical here, but um, I, uh, they didn't want to make it unless I came along with the character of Harry mm -hmm. Bosch, so I could kind of watch over stuff. So I've done that, and um, and I'm really proud of the show. And, and you know, and, and it's about people. It's like who you put together on both sides of the camera. 
you know, we're, we write each season for five months before any, you know, it's six writers in a room and nobody else is involved. No, nobody, no producers or uh, actors or anything. And that's where it all comes together or doesn't. And I've been, we've been lucky that for five seasons, um, and now they just announced we get a sixth. The writing room has come through in a big way, and I'm glad to be a part of that. Um, and the really cool thing is that uh, to get really to your the last part of your question is it has really, I think, um, informed my writing of books in a in a very positive way. And I think um, the two things that I can point to is that in in script writing dialogue is king you know you're not mm-hmm. inside anybody's head right so you deliver character by what they do and what they say and so character so i think my dialogue skills have improved in my books because i've had to improve them when i write scripts oh interesting and then the other thing is for years and years and years the books were all completely through the eyes of harry bosch which is fun and which is great, but when it comes to making a TV show, Harry Bosch can't be in every scene. Right. Uh, you have, so the the people that were veteran um, TV people who were brought in on this, and I'm Mister, you know, naive uh, rookie, said we have to spread the story out and we have to give lives to some of the ancillary characters. And you know we're all professionals, and no one holds back. You know, and and you know, being a journalist before I was a novelist, you know, I have a pretty tough skin. I I've taken good reviews and bad reviews the same way, and it it was made clear to me that those these ancillary characters that we have to give deeper lives to weren't very deep in my books, and that was a lesson I learned, and I think I've now made adjustments in my writing of books where. Um, you know, every character counts. It's not, it, you know, Harry Bosch, the books are about Harry Bosch or Renee Boward, but I got to really give lives to the other people around. And so therefore I think it's helped. And I've also written books since the show that have split narratives. So I'm obviously doing what we do on the show, spreading the, uh, the, the, the load of carrying the story out between, um, characters. And so I can, I can see a lot of, um, you know, um, influences from the TV show and the mm-hmm. books. And I know in the last season, that was the first season that you didn't actually write any episodes. And I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but I don't think that it suffered one bit for that. Was it hard to relinquish that power? Uh, no, it wasn't because I, I know the, um, it's, this is like a, the shorthand doesn't sound right, but it's kind of a machine and, and it's a machine I trust. Um, we have very little turnover in our writing room and in our crew and in our actors and everything. So the further along we go, the more we're united as a family. And it's not like I wasn't there, uh, but I don't feel the need to actually write scripts. I'm involved in outlining scripts. I'm involved in outlining the season. I sit in the writing room, and then, of course, scripts go through me when they're written, and I have a say about it. And Mm -hmm. that's really all I need to know. I'm not trying to build a career as a screenwriter. Uh, I'm I'm a novelist who's um, kind of um, moonlighting in TV at the moment, um, you know, to a high degree. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day, I'm not hoping that I've written 20 Harry Bosch scripts or something. I'm hoping I'm, I've written 20 or 30 uh, Harry Bosch novels. 
And this latest novel is just terrific. It's been getting tons of praise. In fact, I think last time I checked, it was uh, number four on the New York Times fiction list. It's called Dark Sacred Night, and it brings together your best-known character, Harry Bosch, with your newest character, Renee Ballard. Uh, This is not your first time that you've brought together characters from two different series into one novel. Is that something that you do for the fans, or what do you get from that? I do it for myself and for the fans, but, you know, it's it goes back to the Hieronymus Bosch paintings. There's always all kinds of stuff going on mm-hmm. in different parts of these paintings, yeah. but, but it's one painting. <laughs> um, I kind of view all my writing as, you know, b- because it's basically L.A.-centric, it's, it's uh, contemporary, the books are set in the year they're published, that... And and we're like in the justice system, so it's it's pretty clear that these people could know each other or cross paths and so forth. And so I think it's a natural thing to do. I I really like doing it. And you know, for most of my career or most of my books, I write about Harry Bosch. But in a book like this, where the narration is split between riding with Bosch and riding with Ballard, when you're with Ballard, you get another angle on Bosch. So from the writing standpoint that is fun. Mm-hmm. And I believe that what happens in the writing happens in the reading. So when I think that's cool to write a take on what Renee sees in Harry, mm-hmm. I think when the reader comes to that take, they're going to smile as well. And so, it, you know, I do it for myself, but, I, but when I, if I'm doing something for myself, it means I'm doing something for the reader as well. And Renee Ballard is based on one specific person you know. Tell us a little bit about her. Well, that's the big difference. Harry Bosch has come from, you know, my many years as a police reporter and knowing lots of detectives. And so and then also the influences of books and TV, you know, Philip Marlowe, um, so on and so forth. I put all that into a swirling, you know, blender kind of and out came Harry Bosch. Renee Bauer is completely different. Um, one of the, d- the detectives I know and who has helped me with my Bosch books and is a consultant on the Bosch show is a woman named Mitzi Roberts, and um, in the course of knowing her over the last six or seven years, she told me about how early in her career, before she was a homicide detective, she worked the midnight shift, the late show, as they call it, and, um, and you know, kind of anecdotally told me really interesting stories. And what I really was drawn to was the idea that when I write about Harry Bosch, he's a homicide detective, so it's a murder yeah. case. If you work on the late shift, you might get a murder case, but you might also get a burglary or you might also get a missing persons or a domestic dispute. And um, so it's a it's a nice variety. And so after doing this for whatever, 29 books or so, I decided I want to go in that direction and, and try to write a book that has, doesn't have a murder in it, you mm-hmm. know, but has but still has everything you need, like tension and high stakes and so forth. And so that's where The Late Show came. So that established um, Renee, um, and it was written with a lot of help from Detective Roberts. And now we go forward, and they cross paths with um, with Harry Bosch. And um, having one detective that I can go to and say, you know, what would Renee do here, or you know, have you had this experience yourself? Any any stories you can tell me has just been fantastic. It's just been. Uh, I think really what makes um, the character uh, uh, connect with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely frees you up and gives you a lot of places that you can go with that. 
And I, I believe the real life character, as well as Renee, worked the late show in Hollywood of all places, which must have all kinds of crazy stories from midnight to 7 a.m. Uh, yep. Has she told you things that were just too crazy to believe in fiction? I, I've, yeah, in a way she has. I mean, there is, um, it's weird when you write fiction, you have to be more believable than real life. And, yeah. and we all know, especially in a place like Hollywood after midnight, a lot of weird stuff happens. And, you know, I, she's told me stories where I kind of make them more believable in in fiction. And, and that's not just this. That's happened to me over the many years of writing about cops in L.A. Some of the anecdotes I get that um, the cops who give them to me swear it really happened. I remember, I mean, it all came home to me in one of my early books where I had a, uh, uh, I put in a true story where uh, the cops had gotten a tip about a, some of money and drugs and they went to check it out and knocked on the door and someone said, come in. So they went in and there were drugs and guns on, on display. And it turned out that a parrot in the room had said, come in. <laughs> and then it became a legal challenge about whether they really had authority to enter. And I put that all wow. in a book and my editor said wanted me to cut it and I and I said that really happened and she said it doesn't matter it has to be believable. I, I believe that Renee was your first woman character or first main character that was a woman was it challenging to write a woman? Um, I actually wrote one long, long time ago, but this first time I wrote one as a cop. Uh, the one before was a burglar um but you know it, it's it's a common question i get about this book and and writing about renee that um but it i mean writing it in itself is a challenge writing about harry bosch is a challenge so i'm not going to say it wasn't a challenge but at the same time it's not prevalent in my head oh i'm writing about a woman what would a woman think which I write about people who are who have a certain craft and have a certain dedication, mm -hmm. and are good at their jobs and are are dug into their jobs so that they know how to do it. They know the shortcuts. They know the shorthand. And I just think that if I can establish that and with a high degree of accuracy, you know, verisimilitude, we can get to gender next. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, and that, and it's been very helpful having Missy Roberts be someone who can read early drafts of chapters and books and so forth and say, you know, at this point, um, I would be doing this. And, and it's a very female point of view and I can get that in there and, and it works. So writing a book is a challenge. I didn't think this was a, a greater challenge or anything like that than writing a Harry Bosch book or a Mickey Haller book. Harry Bosch is now a cold case detective. What kind of a person goes into that line of work? Somebody like Harry Bosch. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, it's you know, yeah. what that comes out of is um the big thing that was difficult for me when I left journalism and went into um crime writing, crime novel writing was the leaving of reality um you know, the clearance rate in L.A. runs around 75% on murders, so that means one out of every four people who kill someone gets away with it. Mm. That is sad, and it's not, um, and it's awful. And then I moved into this world where every murder is solved. You know, it 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 plays with me, um, and so by um, plays with me is not the right word. It it plays on me, or you know, it works on me that. Um, 
even though I'm sitting here bragging about how I try to be so accurate and so forth, that's like a big societal accuracy that I don't have. You know, I can't write books where every um, every fourth book the person gets away with it. I really have to tie things up. But if you go into cold cases, you're you're going into cases that were not solved for like 20, 30, whatever years. And so you're in a way, it's a way for me to remind myself as well as readers and so forth that people get away with murder in our society. And, you know, here's one guy who th- cares about that mm-hmm. and who is relentless in, in pursuing some of these cases. And these are cops that you know, cold case detectives? Yeah, Missy Roberts was on the cold mm-hmm. case squad. Um, most of the detectives that help me now, um, they might not be on the cold case squad now, but have spent time on it. You're also about to launch your own podcast. It's a true crime show. There's been this explosion of true crime, both in television and definitely within the podcast medium. Uh, have you been wanting to dip your toe back into true crime for a while now? A little bit. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts and have enjoyed them. And, you know, a couple things have happened. One is I've been the beneficiary of amazing consultation, anecdotal stories, and so forth from real detectives. And mm-hmm. I have found universally they tell, they're tell great storytellers in themselves. And so I, on one hand, I was thinking, like, I could be a podcast where I could be the host and I could ask the questions and people could hear the voices of the people that helped me create Harry Bosch and, and Renee Ballard, and they can tell their own stories. Um, and, and so that was one aspect of it. One aspect is what's going on in the country now where, where reporters are in, from some segments of society and politicians are called enemies of the people. And that would, I guess that would include me because that was my career for a long time. And that, that has kind of fired up my reporting genes, I guess you would say. Hmm. And, and I'm not in a position where I can just go back to the new, a newspaper and start writing story, crime stories. So I think... And, you know, um, the podcast is a new, is a new form of media um, that's burgeoning and being more and more important to people. And so that was the other aspect I, that made me kind of stop thinking about it and doing it. And what's the name of it? Because people can subscribe now, right? Yeah, you can s- subscribe now. And there's it doesn't come out till um, January 14th. It's okay. called Murder Book. Murder book and murder book. That's a reference to um, at least with the LAPD and the local uh, LA County sheriffs. I don't. I can't say this is police universal, but when they investigate a murder, they uh, put all their documentation, their photos, their uh, transcripts, and so forth into a, a binder that they call the murder book, and they ca- their their log. They all keep you know a chronological record of the mm-hmm. investigation which is a major tool in the in the case, that's always front and center in a murder book. And so that's why um, I, call, I called it that. And uh, what we're trying to do is it's going to be a 10-episode season all about one case that spanned 30 years in Los Angeles. Um, with um, uh, It involves uh, three detectives that are I'm pretty close to and have helped me with my books for a long time. And and they carry the case at different times and made um, significant um, advances in the case at different times. Well, then let me be the first to welcome you to podcasting, sir. <laughs> Thank uh, you, sir. <laughs> um, I, I hope uh, I'm in it as long as you are. 
Well, folks, go subscribe to Murder Book and definitely check out his new novel, Dark Sacred Night. Michael Conley, thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thanks again to Michael Conley for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Dark Sacred Night, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Watch all five seasons of Bosch, available on Amazon Prime TV now. And subscribe to his upcoming podcast, Murder Book, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Keep up with Michael at michaelconnolly.com or on Twitter at at Connolly Books. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design. But they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. You can start building your own career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron's local WeWork campuses, or you can take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast, read the reviews, and sign up for a free intro course. Enrollment is open now. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.